Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby. And this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Well, hello and welcome everybody to Optimal, a podcast. My name is Dr. Dickon Weatherby, and I'm joined as always by Beth Allen DeLulio in Naples, Florida. How are things to be with you, Beth? Hi there. Wonderful. Thank you. So first podcast of 2024, and we have a very special guest today, Dr. William Harris, president and founder of the Fatty Acid Research Institute, and also the founder of Omega Quant Analytics. Dr. Harris has been a leading researcher in the omega-3 fatty acid field for over 40 years, has published 300 scientific papers on fatty acids and health, the vast majority on omega-3. He has been on the faculty of three medical schools, the universities of Kansas, Missouri at Kansas City, and South Dakota, and has received five NIH grants to study omega-3. He was the co-author on three AHA statements on fatty acids and heart health, and as the co-inventor of the omega-3 index and other omega-3 blood tests, and the founder of Omega Quant Analytics, Dr. Harris has been ranked among the top 2% of scientists worldwide based on the impact of his research. And we are very, very honored to have you today, Dr. Harris, to talk to us about omega-3 fatty acids, omega quant, and any wonderful work that you're doing. So welcome to Optimal, the podcast. Hey, thank you very much. It's fun to talk with you, Dick. Excellent. So we see that the concept of omega-3 index started, I guess, in 2004. You, know, you published an article, and that, that grew into omega quant Omega-3 index dried spot testing, which is conveniently available over the counter today, which is amazing. I'm just curious, what first piqued your interest in Omega-3s and then developing the test that you developed? It's a long story, but I'll start at the beginning. After I got my PhD in nutrition, general nutrition, I decided to focus on fats and cardiovascular health. And I went to your current state, Oregon. Oregon Health Sciences University in okay, uh, yeah, up in Portland, yeah, yeah, right up there in Portland, seventy-eight, and I went to work for a researcher named Bill Connor, who was a physician scientist. And in those days, we were studying the effects of different kinds of dietary fats on blood cholesterol levels. And we, of course, knew that high intakes of animal fats, solid fats, butter, lard, tallow, etc., will raise cholesterol. And we knew that taking polyunsaturated fatty acids uh, from basically seed oils, corn oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, whatever, I lowered those, when those are liquid, they lowered cholesterol. But we didn't know if it was the animalness or the plantness or the solidness or the liquidness of these fats that was causing the rise or fall in cholesterol. So Bill had the idea of testing an animal fat that is liquid, like a plant oil, which was salmon oil. And so he assigned me as a new postdoc to organize and run a metabolic ward study, a full, you know, complete feeding study with very high intakes of salmon oil instead of vegetable oil, instead of saturated fat, three different periods, tested people for a month each on these diets to mm. fed them everything they ate. And that was my introduction. We gave them, golly, we gave them huge amounts of uh, omega-3 in hindsight. It was like 20 to 25 grams a day. 
in about a hundred milliliters of, of uh, salmon oil. So they were really socking it down far more than anybody, even Eskimos ever ate. But Bill thought, well, let's hit it hard and see what happens. And that's where he discovered that omega-3s lower triglyceride levels. It didn't Actually, they lowered cholesterol too, but the same way that plant oils did. Uh, so it turned out to be the liquidness, not the animalness or plantness of the oil. But it really wasn't an active lowering by the fish oil or the plant oil. It was actually the removal of saturated fat from the diet that lowered cholesterol. Saturated fat actively raises LDL cholesterol, the bad cholesterol. Um, and if you take it away and give anything else, even cardboard, I suppose, you would lower your cholesterol level. So that's what we, what we found. And that was my introduction to omega-3. We studied bleeding as well because there was concerns from uh, Eskimo studies that had been reported in the 1970s that high doses of omega-3 might cause bleeding. So we studied platelet function as well as lipoprotein metabolism. That's the beginning. I stuck with that for about, I studied really the effects of giving omega-3 on X, Y, and Z outcome in humans for about 20 years. And then a, kind of a light bulb went on in the early 2000s when I was at a meeting, an American Heart Association meeting, and a report from the Physician's Health Study at Harvard showed that people with the highest red blood cell, highest omega-3 blood levels, were really low risk for having sudden cardiac death over time. Mm -hmm. And it was that point that this kind of aha moment happened that says omega-3 levels in the blood are important. They mean something. They're modifiable, and they can have a big effect on heart health. And that's when I and my colleague, uh, Clemens von Schacke, a cardiologist from Munich, we were together at this meeting, and we came up with this idea, let's create a test, a blood test that physicians can use, researchers can use, consumers can use. And so that was really the genesis. That was 2002 and until 2004 to write the kind of a physician paper on that idea when we published that in April of 2004. So golly, 20 years ago. 20 years ago. So out of that came the omega-3, what's known as the omega-3 index. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious, 20 years down the road, where do you think that that particular testing methodology, maybe even the research on omega-3s, where do you think that has the greatest impact on human physiology in terms of the testing and then also the therapeutic intervention? You know, we're just working on a paper right now that's where I'm interested in comparing the omega-3 index to other classic risk factors, particularly for heart disease, because that's mm -hmm. where we know about this. So cholesterol, blood pressure, having diabetes, smoking, things like that, having a, H, a high HDL or low HDL. So there, there are several, six or seven different factors that are part of risk calculators that are in common use around the world now. Uh, used to be what's called the Framingham Risk Score. Now it's modified to a more of a pooled mm -hmm. cohort equation, it's called now. But these are equations that, are, that doctors can put certain numbers in that are your risk factors and predict your 10-year risk for having cardiovascular event. And our question was, does the omega-3 play in that sandbox? And so we have data from uh, the Framingham study itself, and we have 10-year outcomes. We know who had, we measured their blood levels in around 15 years ago, you know, omega-3 index in this cohort of people in Framingham, Massachusetts. And so 10 years has gone by, and we now know actually who developed heart disease and who didn't. And so we have these predictive equations. We can go back, back in time and say, well, would we have predicted that this person did? And we find that the omega-3 index actually adds predictive value to each and every one of those different, to cholesterol levels, to blood pressure mm -hmm. levels, to smoking. And so it really is just as much 
a risk factor. I mean, if people think cholesterol is a risk factor, it's something that they ought to know about. Yeah. Then omega-3 is right in the same game. It's, it's got the same power of prediction, if not better, than cholesterol levels. And so we're getting ready to publish a paper on that topic. But that's been my goal for from the beginning is to get this test to be seen by the medical community as important, if not more so, as standard tests that they run every day. Should be part of every annual physical. Mm-hmm. Partly because it's very easily modified. You don't need to take drugs to do it. You just increase your omega-3 intake. It's very simple. Eat more fish that contain high omega-3 or take fish oil supplements, krill oil supplements. They will modify, they will raise the omega-3 index. And we know from other studies that that is beneficial. If I might say something, actually, I'm looking right now in our blog because we have listed some of the research in the blog in your 2017 article, uh, found that if you increased your EPA and DHA intake by 1.5 grams a day, it could increase the index by up to 4%. So it's pretty easy, like you said, to do. And as a nutritionist, I'm a nutritionist by trade with mm-hmm. my master's from Columbia. And I always, one of the first things, I mean, I research and write more than anything now, but if I'm reviewing case studies or I'm talking to somebody or nurses, I work with nurses, I say, make sure they're asking if your folks are consuming seafood, preferably a high omega-3 seafood, at least two to three times a week. Because with that first question, you can figure out who's going to be at the highest risk of a low omega-3 index, right? Because even you can't convert the plant-based alpha-linolenic very well to EPA and DHA. Some people don't do well well at all. So that question too, for physicians, that should be a screening question. And for nurses, a screening question, because if they're not consuming it at least two to three times a week, I'll bet you that their omega-3 is below six and probably below four. I had someone with a 2%, which I think was probably the lowest I'd ever seen. (laughs) That's very low. Yeah, you're you're really getting to the bottom. Yes, but intervention helps. No, no, that's not just junk food eater, you know, didn't know much about nutrition. Yeah, but you can raise it, as you said. You know, you get them on the right track with purified fish oil. I always tell folks, look for the purified version. And, uh, you know, it came up nicely. But all of the things that can be associated, not just sudden cardiac death, I think is one of the biggest things that you affiliated with or associated with, but also depression and inflammation and things that people walk through a physician's door every day. And if doctors and nurses and practitioners are not asking people about their omega-3 intake, they are completely missing that risk factor. And I find that terribly frustrating because cholesterol, it could go up and down for different reasons, but everybody knows their cholesterol level, but nobody even understands that they need to know their omega-3 index. So I push it like crazy. Good. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So coming back to sort of the nutritional intervention, I mean, I think people can get somewhat hung up on ratios between EPA and DHA. And do you have a sense of a sort of a good targeted amount of omega-3s that will have a kind of a long-lasting effect on keeping that omega-3 index high? Yeah, and that's a good question because people do ask. I mean, right, they get, they kind of miss the the forest for the trees. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, I don't care a lot about the EPA-DHA ratio in a given supplement or in a given fish. They come together naturally in fish. Mm -hmm. They're always together. The ratio is maybe, you know, 40% one, 60% the other, or the vice versa. Something in the 50-50-ish area is just fine. I don't see a point in taking just just DHA or just EPA. I think you're missing the boat in either case. So almost all supplements have both EPA and DHA in varying ratios. And 
I don't get exercised about. I'm more interested in the total amount of EPA plus DHA in the diet than I am the ratio. Do you have a sort of recommended kind of milligram amount or doses that you've seen to have the greatest impact on moving the needle? On the yeah, yeah. Beth alluded to that a minute ago. We did publish a study looking at how much omega-3, EPA plus DHA together, regardless of the ratio, how much it took to raise the omega-3 index from A to B. And our standard is to go from the 4%, which is kind of the borderline low, to too low, to 8%, which is our target optimal level. Mm -hmm. And to do that, based on this meta-analysis of different studies we did, we took about 1,500 roughly milligrams a day of EPA plus DHA to make that move. And that's not bad. That's not hard to do. You know, that's a serving of salmon. It's probably a two or three tins of, of sardines a week, you know, that kind of thing. It, it's it's within the definitely within the realm of uh, nutrition. You don't have to take supplements to do it. Yeah. Uh, it's just most people in practice find it's easier to take supplements than to eat fish. I had a figure from, uh, I guess, Stanton 2020. It said about only 20% of the world's population is thought to meet the minimum intake of 250 milligrams a day for EPA and DHA. And the lowest omega-3 index values below 4% were seen in North America, South America, Europe, the Middle East, Africa, and Southeast Asia. So people aren't even needing that minimum of 250 milligrams a day. No. Average. Yeah. So well, and then there's, you know, people argue, well, okay, let's assume everybody did make, meet that. How many fish would you have to kill? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, I know. Right? Do we have, you know, then that gets on the ecological side, the sustainability issue. It's a complex issue, and that's kind of why I'm, I'm hoping as we talk more about the future that there will be basically infinite, an infinite source of omega-3 if we get them into plant-based ground plant with roots that can make grow as much omega-3 as we need. Um, it's going to kind of take getting over the GMO concern because it's a GMO product. But there are people trying to actually program plants that already make ALA and nudge them to make EPA and DHA. DHA with that's the right enzymes, sure. Wow. That's what we're missing a lot of times. Yeah. So how far along is that research? It's quite well developed. I mean, a lot of it's done in Australia. Uh, a lot of that work started there. And they've got some species of plants that will make, you know, 20% of the fatty acids in their oil or EPA or DHA, which is fantastic. I have to ask, are they crossing it with fish genes? Because, or human genes? Who has the not, genes not, to make not fish. Of course, you know, fish don't really make omega-3s either. The fish eat it like we do. It starts at the base of the food chain with the kind of single-cell microorganisms that make EPA and DHA from sunlight and sugar and, you know, like plants do. So there's certain microalgae, particularly single-celled algae, not seaweed, but single-celled algae that have been discovered that naturally make EPA or DHA. And that's kind of at the base of the food chain. And of course, that's been exploited. There are algal omega-3 oils, which is great for vegans or vegetarians. And it's the same chemical. It's DHA and CPAs. It's just expensive to make it that way at this point. I was going to ask that. Is it why not just grow more algae? I even had seen a long time ago, they grow algae in the smokestacks and the algae can consume the CO2 before it left the smokestack. Yeah. And then they took the algae and used it for biodiesel. But you could take the algae maybe and use it for human consumption. That is true. And whether it would be the actually eating the biomass per se, mm -hmm. you, or eating the oils extracted from the mm -hmm. biomass. That's what they're doing now when they produce an algal 
We have algae bloom. What about the algae blooms we have down here in Florida? I think well, you can convert uh, that to right. Depends on the species. They, they yeah, may not right, be, right. Let's talk to them. <laughs> talk to them. Yeah, because there was a there's a product called I think Neuromins, which used to be the sort of plant based DHA. I'm the presuming brain. that the kind of the research you talk about is along the same lines around algal right. sources. I think it's so, life. There's a thing from DSM called Life's DHA. Yeah, it began with DHA, and now they have species that make EPA as well, so they can blend the two together and make an EPA plus DHA product. And the original impetus for using algal products was to put to create a DHA that could be put into infant formulas because there was concern that contaminants in fish, you know, yada yada yada. Yeah, you don't want to get your omega threes from fish, even though the fish oils don't have well. They have in the past. They had some contaminants, um, but they're much cleaner now. But the uh, FDA in those days didn't want to uh, let fish oil be the source of omega-3 for infant formulas, but algae was fine. Would you prefer algal or algal production versus the GMO production? I don't care. I don't care where you get the molecules. It's just going to be a matter of people's mindsets about GMO. You know, if you're just black and white on GMO, then okay, algal. If you're a little more what I would consider reasonable about, you know, looking at case by case GMO yeah. situations, I don't really care. The one was the most economical, the one that's going to get the most omega-3 into the marketplace for the lowest price for the most people mm-hmm. is yeah. what I'm in favor of. How close are we, do you think, to having that GMO source of omega-3s? Ooh, I would guess within five, 10 years, but, but I think a lot of it just depends on regulations and regulations. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. I mean, there was a product called soy mega that mm-hmm. was produced. It was a modified a GMO modified soybean oil or soybean makes ALA already. Mm-hmm. And Monsanto developed that GMO product and it produced, it didn't produce EPA and DHA, but it produced a intermediate fatty acid called steridonic acid, which is 18 carbons and four double bonds instead of three. And that's the first step to go from ALA up to EPA biosynthetically. So getting to this steridonic acid, 18,4, if you ate that stuff in oil, it was much more readily converted up to EPA and DHA than ALA was. So it was a step toward, and Soy Mega had this, you know, it was a good product developed and just, it just died because of GMO opposition. With that conversion bypass Delta-5 desaturase? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's what they do. They put in the uh, Delta-5 and some delta-6 and some elongases, some enzymes that will elongate fatty acids. They graft them into plants and make sure that those genes are turned on by signals that are typically turned on other genes in plants. Right. But then you've got to keep, I mean, anyway. That's really the rate limiting step, isn't it? In the delta-5 desaturase in humans. The first uh, step, right. The first step. But it's also somewhat rate limiting in terms of underactivity and how that enzyme can convert the ALA into EPA and DHA. Is that my remembering my biochemistry correctly or, or making yeah. it too simplified? I believe the first step is Delta-6, but the Delta-5 hops along very soon thereafter. And so, yeah, that's rate limiting. And it can be inhibited to some extent by how much omega-6 you eat, by mm-hmm. linoleic acid, because mm-hmm. they compete for the same enzyme. You know, and I am a fan of a linoleic acid. I, mean, I will admit it, come out of the closet, and I think omega-6 <laughs> We need both. It was the first essential fatty acid we recognize, right? Right. Is the linoleic. Yeah. 
I don't know if I want to step into this, but I want to say one thing that some of the concern I think way back when with the GMO is how do you can contain or control the contaminants? Like when they had that tryptophan scare and there was a contaminant in the tryptophan supplements. And when they followed it back, according to some physicians and researchers, they followed it back and found that the bacteria that was genetically engineered didn't just produce tryptophan, tryptophan, but produced a low, very, very low dose of a neurotoxin. And Hmm. that was what caused the EMS and the problems with the tryptophan supplement. And that started the concern, I think, with the GMO, where you turn on one gene, are you turning on other genes? Do you know exactly what that gene is going to produce? So I know some of that early on, some of that concern uh, was based on the contaminants. So how do you control? That's real. I I mean, it's quality control. It's, uh, you know, obviously a lot of testing beforehand in animals. Mm -hmm careful testing in humans and looking for those kind of you know, uh, off products. I mean, it's, it's certainly a, an object lesson right there that I'm sure the industry is well aware of. I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> You're welcome. So let's get back to the testing, because obviously that's uh, an area that you've been heavily involved in, in creating the Omega-3 Index. Sounds like from your upcoming research that you're really recommending that this test be sort of an entry-level test that people should get on an annual basis. And I highly recommend that as well. And, and you know, mm-hmm. the blog post that we've written also pointing to that. How often do you think people should be getting the test done? Obviously, annually would be the minimum. What is your recommendations if someone's come low, let's say Beth's 2% person comes in very, very low, you put them on a therapeutic dose? A, how quickly would you see change? I mean, we're talking about in a week and a month. And then how often would you recommend that the test gets performed? Bring in somebody low and get a baseline, which has already been done for this person. I would then calculate the dose and recommend that dose was probably 2,000 milligrams a day, roughly, mm-hmm. for that person. Mm-hmm. And then you'll see changes in a week, but you won't see steady state right. in a week. It takes about three to four months to get a steady state. With red blood cells. In red blood right? cells. In red blood cells, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Now, partly because of their rate of turnover and partly because there's actually exchange from plasma fatty acids in the red cells that come and go. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. roughly three to four months is a good time to retest. And if that person is then up to 8% on that dose, mm-hmm. I would say then annual. If they keep on that dose, if they stop yeah. the dose, then it's going to go back down. And then I think, again, I agree with annual will be great. And there's some, I have to say that some people do not want to take fish oil. They won't touch fish. But there's actually a pretty good tasting, like mango peach fish oil. <laughs> some of the flavored fish oils are actually decent, and I've had kids take them. Sure. So if someone's afraid and says, I can have it, take that amount, or I burp up the fish oil, get a good product and you know, put it in the fridge, you might not burp it up. But anyhow, I just wanted to say that, that there are ways to get there if people are not interested in taking just cod liver oil even, or it's not controlled, but you know, pills or fish, then there are some flavored products that, you know, a spoonful of, you know what, can help the medicine go down. So Yeah, right. <laughs> right, exactly. And yeah, those emulsions are kind of almost toppings in a way. They taste good. And they taste <laughs> great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, may, I ask about the being over the counter too. I mean, anybody can go and get your Omega Quant test. Am I right? Still? Yeah. Yeah. Finger prick. Anybody can order the test. <laughs> at the at-home test, right? Yeah. It's so simple. And yes, a baseline at least, because I think people will be surprised when they see that their level is three and then they read our blog and then they just feel compelled to have to bring it up to 8%. Well, I, I hope hope. I'm sure your blog is compelling. <laughs> That's <laughs> good. Yeah, I mean, 90, you know, roughly 95% of Americans are below 8%. At risk of sudden cardiac death. 
That just yeah, that well, first rate alone. Yeah, I mean, it isn't. It's not the only thing. You know, I hate to pretend like omega threes are a silver bullet and will cure every disease. They don't. But there's something you can do nutritionally that's fairly cheap and very safe, and it's effective. There's many other things you can do to reduce risk for all these diseases as well. But let's do everything we can. Are there other new critical nutrients that interplay with omega threes to sort of help? the body become more replete? I mean, I know we're focusing heavily on the fatty acid itself. What are your thoughts around sort of other nutrients that can help on the journey, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, there's some, number one, not a lot of research on that. I'll say that. But mm -hmm. there is some interesting evidence on B vitamins when we come to talk about dementia and cognitive yeah. function. There was one study where they looked at people given B vitamins and omega-3, and the people who had were replete with omega-3 the B vitamins had a good effect on slowing cognitive loss, put it that way. If you weren't good at omega-3, then the B vitamins didn't. So it's an interesting interplay. It's probably a homocysteine-related issue that maybe the B vitamins lowered homocysteine and that will help. It's just another risk factor, basically, in cognitive loss. But that's a common one. I mean, there's other factors that help you absorb omega-3s better, other food factors, primarily just fat. It's always important to take omega-3 supplements of a meal and the meal that has some fat in it so that mm -hmm. your gallbladder will contract and you squirt out all the digestive juices, pancreatic juices that come out and, and you'll better absorb the omega-3s that are there if you eat it with a meal, mm -hmm. particularly if you're taking the ethyl ester form of omega-3s. They really do need to be taken with food. The triglyceride forms and phospholipid forms are not that critical, mm -hmm. but it's always good, advisable to do that. Curious around, you were talking about, well, let me, let me just phrase my question there. Where do you see the field of omega-3 fatty acids bridging the gap between what I would consider sort of traditional dietary wisdom that may, you know, naturopaths, chiropractors, you know, functional medicine practitioners, we're, we're, I think we're all very aware of the role that omega-3 fatty acids play in health. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, as this testing methodology that you've created, is it being used in more allopathic or, you know, modern medical facilities that you're aware of? More and more. You're absolutely right. It's the functional medicine chiropractors, naturopaths who are yeah. more attuned into this. And thank God for them. But so back in 2011, there was a laboratory, a clinical, new clinical laboratory on a par, same idea as Quest or LabCorp, called Health Diagnostic Laboratory. And that was in Richmond, Virginia. And that lab from the beginning acquired the omega-3 index test and started offering it widely. And that was really the first time mm -hmm. in standard clinical allopathic medicine, as I say, that doctors were seeing omega-3 levels reported out. And that was a great boost to the field because that's what's kind of prompted people like the folks at Quest to bring on their own omega-3 test. It's not the omega-3 index, but it's an omega-3 status test. So, you know, I'm halfway thankful for that. I wish it was the omega-3, but it's, you know, I mean, I appreciate anybody shining a light on omega-3. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, another lab up in Boston that's doing a kind of a whole blood omega-3 or a plasma yeah. omega-3 and different ways of doing it. But it's sneaking its way slowly into clinical medicine, but it's quite slow. Mm -hmm. Slower what than I What can we do? What can we do to speed that up? We'll do anything. Why don't you fund a consensus conference? There you go. But yeah, I mean, there are... I'm not sure you want to get this into the weeds, but why not? Let's omega threes. Why not? Huh? Yeah, omega threes are fatty acids. Measuring fatty acid status is much more difficult than measuring cholesterol status right. or glucose status 
or measuring your blood sodium, you know, for anything yeah. like that. Yeah. Because those are single molecules that you can measure as a concentration in the plasma and the methods are standardized. Yeah. Everybody gets the same answer. Well, fatty acids, good Lord. I mean, they're present in plasma, they're present in red cells, they're present in platelets, white blood cells, and there's a whole mix of them. And they're different proportions, different ratios in all those different tissues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can express it as concentration. You can express it as a percent of the total fatty acids, mm-hmm. which is what we prefer. And you can express it in milligrams per deciliter or millimoles per liter. You know, So there's so many different ways to express it. Coming to a consensus on exactly what tissue, what sample we're using, red cells, mm-hmm. whole blood, mm-hmm. plasma, how are we going to express it? And do we stand, how, who standardizes the method across all these labs? So we all sing the same song. Those are unusual obstacles in the fatty acid testing world. That's going to s- slow this down, I'm afraid. But we keep knocking on the door. And the finger prick method is so simple, like I said, at the at-home tests, being so simple for folks that don't want to have a blood draw, I would hope that that would become the dominant go-to. Well, yeah, outside the standard medical model, exactly. If you want to monitor your nutritional status, I mean, I don't think of it as a diagnostic test. I think of it kind of as a screening test or a nutritional status test. Right, right. If you're taking charge of your own health, yeah, that's a perfect way to do it. If you're just depending on your doctor to watch all your values and keep you healthy, well, that's probably not going to happen. Well, insurance might not pay either. And then you can get zapped with a big bill if you try to go through insurance and they say no. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. charge you four or five times what you might have paid on the outside. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I, you know, our omega 3 index test is like 50 bucks, which is nothing, but it's very reasonable. It's pretty reasonable in context. That's true. What other tests does Omega Quant have available? Well, in the fatty acid world, I mean, and that's really, we are fatty acid specialists. We tried to play around in vitamin D and A1C and things that every other laboratory in the world right. based. And I, you know, I guess, what would you call it? Refocusing back to fatty acids and, and let our play in our, the sandbox we really know the best. Right. But we have a mother's milk DHA test where a mom, an lactating woman can put a drop of her milk, just like on the same card as we would do a dried blood spot, put a dried milk spot. And we will measure the DHA content of her milk. Wow, and awesome. then she can, of course, American women, because they eat so little DHA, are low in breast milk DHA, which yeah. is important for the development of the brain of the baby. So that's monitorable as well. We, In the same context, we have a basically a pregnancy test. It's a red blood cell DHA test, focuses just on DHA, in mom's blood while she's pregnant. Hmm. And that test uh, aims for a DHA level of 5% or above. Now, that 5% for the pregnant woman is the level above which, well, actually, I should say the level below which there is an increased risk for preterm birth, which is, you know, kind of a fascinating. People have studied omega-3 in growth and development, pregnancy and lactation for decades. And it's only been fairly recently that they finally realized that when they looked at the gestational age of babies on the omega-3 treatment, which are usually on the omega-3 or the mom was on the omega-3 treatment to help with cognitive development of the baby. But when they looked at gestational age, you know, how long were you pregnant? There seemed to be two or three more days of carrying the baby when you're on high omega-3. They might be mad about that, though. (laughs) Well, except it it removes a lot of kids out of the preterm birth area. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. True. I mean, if, if you're going to term, you don't necessarily want to go to term plus 10. Right. Um, <laughs> That's what I meant. 
That's what you meant, right? But if you're going to be delivering at, you know, 30 weeks and this pushes it back to 35 weeks, that's a mm, huge okay. benefit. And so there have been meta-analysis, Cochrane reviews that are showing, you know, women that take omega-3 DHA during pregnancy have a significantly reduced risk of uh, preterm delivery. And the blood level at which that becomes a problem is under 5% red cell DHA. So we have a, a test like that. A specific test. Okay. Would the omega-3 index tell that same pregnant woman anything if she just did the omega-3 index? Sure. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's pretty close to 8%. You know, if that the equivalent of a red blood cell DHA for the omega-3 index is probably 7 to 8%. So it's gotcha. you can get the same idea. We have a lot of practitioners that are running sort of the full gamut of essential fatty acid testing. You know? Right. And so I'm curious where sort of the omega-3 index as a test, is that enough? That's, that's a good question. It's something I, honestly, I struggle with. Omega Quant offers a, well, the basic test for 50 bucks, and I think it's 80 bucks for what they call, we call a plus test, which gives you some omega-6, omega-3 ratios and trans fat levels, which is kind of becoming passe in a way. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't say that. No, I think you're right. And that, yeah, I mean, trans fats are going away. And then there's the complete test is like a hundred bucks, which is the full whole blood fatty acid profile. And I mean, there's some interesting information there. We know that, for example, palmitic acid with 16-O saturated fat, higher levels of that are predictive of increased risk for diabetes for example, mm -hmm. metabolic syndrome. I'm becoming very interested in the blood linoleic acid level as a predictor of health outcomes. Omega-6, primary omega-6 fatty acid, linoleic acid. We've seen in many studies that the higher the blood omega-6 levels, linoleic acid primarily, the better the health outcomes, whether it's developing type 2 diabetes, mm -hmm. whether it's heart disease, whether it's total mortality, higher omega-6 linoleic is yeah. better. Well, I can say, if I might, that linoleic doesn't always get converted to arachidonic acid, but I believe it's also converted into endocannabinoids. Talking about getting into the weeds. Well, <laughs> so right. I mean, that's pathways. There are different paths. And that's a very good point because people, you know, only like, you know, less than 1% of, of the linoleic gets converted to arachidonic. Very yeah. little of it. Very little, um, yeah. We eat arachidonate and that's, but only about like 100 milligrams a day compared to say 15,000 milligrams a day of linoleic acid. But you're right, Beth Allen, that there are metabolic pathways that we're just discovering or metabolites of linoleic that are not arachidonic acid. I mean, there's a thing called nitrated linoleic acid, where a nitro NO group is attached to linoleic acid. And that's one of the major, when you measure blood nitric oxide, Part of it, what you're measuring is what's attached to linoleic acid. So it might have and some biological function. Itself. It is biological function. And all the, what we call oxylipins, part of which are the endocannabinoids, are all in there doing stuff. It, it, you know, it's all black in there right now. We can't see. We're just discovering some of these molecules. And it's, it's very possible that a high linoleic acid, independent of any conversion to arachidonate, has health benefits. Mm -hmm. And we just need to, there is such a negative view of linoleic acid. Maybe it's a negative view of, of seed oils, but it flows over into a painting of linoleic acid as a poison. That's kind of a fight I'm fighting all the time that I just don't think, I mean, somehow people don't think you can like omega-3s and omega-6s. You have to hate the omega-6s if you like omega-3s. 
<laughs> we need That's, a balance. We need balance in the middle, like with everything. You need, exactly. You need to find out what the right level is of each and aim for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was always you, frustrated. I was in nutrition support mostly in my clinical life and mm-hmm. the ICU and in trauma. And I waited decades for them to come up with a structured lipid that had some omega-3 in it because with parental nutrition, all they give is omega-6. And with that yeah. imbalance, how are you going to control inflammation? And when I left the field in about 2008, as far as nutrition support, they still hadn't come up with that structured lipid with omega-3. So yeah, the balance always. People well, always omega, omega then wasn't available then? Gosh, not in 2008. It was last yeah, time no, I stepped well, that, inside. That could be. You. I yeah. think it's been approved now, but it's a product that's <laughs> got roughly 10% EPA and DHA. Right, intravenous, the intravenous product for parental nutrition. That's right. wonderful to hear because I'd yeah. wait and wait since the 1990 <laughs> and wait. Yeah, right. But that's, you know, they finally figured that out. So does your complete test, does that measure the linoleic acid? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it, it, may, it reports out 24 fatty acids or so and some ratios. Okay. And, you know, honestly, I think there's some information in there like palmitate and linoleic. A lot of our customers like to have the total fatty acid profile. I have trouble knowing kind of what to do with it. And most of the fatty acids, many fatty acids are present in like less than 5% of the total less than 1% of the total, but they're part of the list. And there's many of them are not dietary fatty acids. You don't eat them. They're made in the body from the fatty acids you do eat. And so how to change them, you know, do you want to raise them or not? Is there evidence that raising them, how would you do it? And is there any evidence that if you did know how to raise it, would you be able to reduce risk for some disease? We don't know. It's great to collect this data and be able to look at those questions. But at this point, I think a lot of folks just like to get a lot of numbers. That's been my experience. The the mm-hmm. amount of, I mean, I've been doing this for 25 years and the amount mm-hmm. of the biomarks that people are running nowadays, it's just off the charts. I mean, I'm looking at these panels going, I don't even know how you would even make an assessment on any of this stuff. Um, TMI, too much. Yeah, TMI. It's like, (laughs) anyway. Right. (laughs) I mean, an interesting question. I mean, obviously, we got a lot of new practitioners coming into the field. That What would you say for a new practitioner coming into the field of functional integrated medicine? What advice would you offer for incorporating omega-3 assessments and interventions into their practice. It's pretty obvious. I would highly recommend getting an omega-3 index and just that one number. That's very actionable. That number has been tied to a lot of clinical research. So we know that if you achieve this target level, you're going to actually see a clinical benefit. You can't feel a high omega-3 or low Mm -hmm. Mm omega-3. It's like cholesterol or glue. You just can't feel it. So you have to depend on a lab test Mm -hmm. to tell you you're in a healthy spot or not. Uh, and that should motivate you. Numbers motivate us mm-hmm. nowadays. We've got so many biometrics. How many steps have you taken today, right? Yeah, right. Um, so I would recommend that anybody start at least with the basic omega-3 test as part of a screening panel for everybody. And then as you try to optimize their health, that's one of the components you address. And you know, maybe there's seven other things you got to do based on your exams. But this is one that's well-documented and easy to modify. Mm-hmm. I love it. Perhaps you could just share with our listeners where people can get hold of the omega-3 index testing. Is it, like you said, through OmegaQuant? OmegaQuant.com. Really, that's the only place you can get the omega-3 index, or at least our version of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, OmegaQuant, O-M-E-G-A, then Quant, like quantity. Dot com, Then you can just order the test online. It comes in a little kit. You prick your finger, a drop of blood on a piece of paper, mail it in. And I think our turnaround time is like four or five days from receipt. 
in the laboratory, you should get a report with some instructions. And we have an omega-3 index calculator on the website. And mm-hmm. you, you take your number and stick it in the calculator and it will tell you about, you want to increase to 8%, how many milligrams of EPA and DHA oh, we're taking. Yeah. Very cool. Um, that I think is helpful. So th- that'd be my advice. Pretty simple. There do you have go. To avoid, do they have to avoid supplements before taking that test? Are there any restrictions? Well, you mean like on the day of? Well, the week before, sometimes there are some restrictions on certain tests. Yeah, I mean, what we see a lot is you give people a test and they say, oh, wait a minute. I know I'm no good. I know I'm too low. Oh, Let me take a supplement for a while, then I'll test. Yeah. You know, and then they yeah. put it on the shelf and they never, never take the test. Yeah. Um, the point is you want to know where you are at baseline. I mean, maybe that's just us being scientific, right? But that's what I like to know. And then you can see how much impact the change you make has made. If you wait until you've taken X amount of fish oil pills, it's not going to affect if you like take eat a meal of salmon the night before, for example. Yeah, yeah. That's not going to affect the omega. It'll affect your plasma levels, but it won't affect your red cell levels. And that way that the omega-3 index is a lot like a hemoglobin A1C. Right. Compared to a plasma glucose level. It doesn't move around a lot. Excellent. Well, we're drawing to a close here. And I just wanted to, we always ask our guests if there's anything that you're personally doing other than taking omega-3 fatty acids. Is there anything personally that you do, your daily routine, supplements that you take, specific protocols, anything that you do? I'm not, one thing about getting a degree in nutrition, I mean, (laughs) looking back on it, and you guys can appreciate it, I think, you get real excited when you're reading a lot of these popular nutrition books. Mm-hmm. And you get the feeling that omega-3, well, mega vitamins, mega anything is going to cure everything. And you get excited about it. You say, I'm going to go to school for this. And I did. And I got my PhD in nutrition. And I became very cynical about some of the experiments when I went back and looked at the books that mm-hmm. I motivated me. I said, well, that was done in a rat. Come on. What are you talking about? Yeah. And the dose was outrageous. You know, you can't even eat that much in a human. So, and you start getting a little jaded. All that to say, I take a multivitamin and I take omega three. That's all I take. Do you eat fish I, too? Do you also eat? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I try to eat salmon primarily twice a week if I can. But I'm thinking, see, I'm taking about fourteen hundred milligrams EPA DHA a day. When we come to that point in the presentation, any shameless plugs that you want to make for anything that you're doing? How would people find you? Are you speaking at any engagements? Are you? <laughs> no, I'm not. I haven't got a TED talk yet. Uh, <laughs> you should. <laughs> maybe I should. Yeah. My daughter has one, at least a local TED talk. She talked. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, Christina's. Uh, she got her PhD in nutrition from Penn State, and she works with us. And she's real interested in the pregnancy, you know, early life because she's got little kids. Mm. So she did a she did a really nice TED talk on the insanity of avoiding fish while you're pregnant because you're afraid of mercury, right? And the, all the good things you throw out with the baby in the bathwater by avoiding fish. So it's a good little talk. Anyway, I have not got a TED talk. And I don't have a Twitter or an X, and I don't do Facebook. And you sound like me. Them. I don't do any of that stuff. I love it. Good man. <laughs> I don't like that. I don't like that. Fist bump. Here we go. I do have a Twitter account just to follow hockey, but that's about it. I don't do anything else. <laughs> that's what it's good for. <laughs> that's yeah, what it's good for. I mean, we have a Fatty Acid Research Institute is a group that I formed a couple of years ago. And we have a website. You know, it's just look up Fatty Acid Research Institute, find it. And there's my bibliography is there. My papers are there. But, you know, the people who make it want me to be more socially active, as they say. And I'll do what I can. But there's a tremendous amount of 
videotapes, interviews. We do a thing at Omega Quant on roughly a monthly basis called Omega Matters, where we interview Omega-3 experts on different oh, topics. Fascinating. So we put that up on the website at Omega Quant. So a lot of information there, a lot of YouTube, mm-hmm. me talking about this, that, or the other, or Christina. or So there's a tremendous amount of information at the Omega Quant website. Excellent. So that would be the place to go. That's the place mm-hmm. to go. Right. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to share this information with us. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. It sounds like this new article, research article that you're working on, when would that be coming out, do you think? Well, we haven't submitted it yet. So okay. that's, I mean, it, it'll probably be out sometime in 2024. But we're, you know, just Google my name. Yeah. Uh, go to PubMed and put in Harris W.S. William Stephen, and you get publications that are, are the new ones that are available online. Mm-hmm. You know, I should mention one for just got a second where you just had one paper published. Fascinating paper uh, was from a study done at Harvard in patients who had survived a heart attack and they were randomized to fish oil, four grams of Loveza. So the prescription omega-3, four grams of Loveza or placebo within a couple of weeks after their heart attack. And then they were given the omega-3s for six months. That's all, six months. And then at the end of that time, the investigators did cardiac MRI to look at the details of how the heart was healing after the heart attack. And they found that, you know, okay, giving the omega-3, there was certain beneficial remodeling factors in the heart. And this was published five or six years ago. We just had a new paper that came out looking at what happened to these people after six years. And the investigators went back and looked at who developed what they call a major adverse cardiac event in the six Mm -hmm. years following the study. And remember, they only taken omega-3 for six months. And the idea was, well, maybe there was something, you know, maybe they got set on a good path for that six months. And it turned out when they did the analysis by who was assigned to placebo and who was assigned to fish oil, there really was no difference over the next six years of who had these major adverse cardiac events. But if they looked at it a different way, they asked the question, well, who increased their omega-3 index by 5% Mm -hmm. or more? Regardless of whether you were assigned omega-3 or not, the question was, did your omega-3 index go up over 5% or not? And when they looked at it that way, the people who had that good response to um, the omega-3 index to supplementation had 50% less myocardial and heart events over the next six years than the placebo group, even just being exposed for that six months. How do we know they didn't keep up, though, with the omega-3s after the test? They might have said, well, this is important. I'm going to take supplements. They may have, but that should have been the case also in the placebo group, because the placebo group knew the outcome at the end. So, they, I mean, if I'm in the placebo group and I find out, oh, I was in the placebo group, oh, rats. But those guys over there, they were taking fish oil, so I'm going to take fish oil. I mean, so that should be evenly redistributed. Mm-hmm. So the six-month months. period following the MI, was that important period, maybe? To get that fish oil and EPA, it, DHA. It was. And I wish they had started on the day of the heart attack. Right. Yeah. They started two to four months, four, two to four weeks later, which is really sad. But even with that, they still found this long-term effect based on the change in the blood omega-3 level that was not there. And part of the problem with, you know, some people, when you get, just because you get assigned to an omega-3 group doesn't mean you're going to take it. It doesn't mean you're going to absorb it. (laughs) Plus, in these studies, kind of like you alluded to, you could be in the placebo group and you're reading the newspaper (laughs) and you're thinking, I don't know what I'm taking, but I'm not taking any chances. I'm going to go get some fish oil and take it. Just don't tell anybody. I mean, that's what I might do. The Lavazza was the ethyl ester form where they told to take fat, just out of curiosity. Is that the form they would have to consume fat at the meal with? Right. They have to take that with a meal. 
Right. I hope they tell them that because some people are told to cut fat to such a point that it's unhealthy. I just hope that they Right. And you know, some people take their medicines first thing in the morning on an empty stomach, mm-hmm. and that's not good for low bowel. So that's part of the reason probably that the omega-3 level didn't go up in some people in the omega-3 group. But that just raises the point you've got to, the important thing is what's your tissue level? What's your blood level? Not so much how much you're taking. Right. So I had seen that the research said the red blood cell level did reflect the tissue level in the GI tract and in the heart. Yeah, so yeah. That, yeah, it's still a pretty good reflection. Yes, it is. And that's a different question. You know, it, does the blood reflect the tissues? It's different than does the blood reflect your group assignment in a study? Anyway, I got off on that. That was just so a follow Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Harris. Really appreciate sure. you joining us today. For anyone that's interested, go to omegaquant.com, omega, O-M-E-G-A-Q-U-A-N-T.com. Get yourself tested. Very, very important. We also have a lot of articles over at OptimalDX.com and our blogs. Beth Allen, thank you so much for joining us today and wish all of you very well. Uh, I'm Dr. Dick Weatherby from OptimalDX. Take care and stay optimal.